soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Well, keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 27, if you would. We're going to pay attention to, to this powerful passage. We're doing this sermon series leading up to Good Friday and Easter called Man of Sorrows. And we're following Jesus in the journey to the cross. And as we said at the very beginning of this series, there is really kind of one big prayer request that I have for my own heart, for your heart, for our hearts together. And that prayer request is that we would see Jesus a little more clearly. Whether it's the busyness of life that can kind of push Jesus to the periphery of our vision, Or whether it's the burdens of life that can cloud our perspective of Jesus. Whether it's the temptations of life that can tug us away from Jesus. Maybe just the tiredness of life. Maybe it's the doubts. Maybe it's the anxieties and worries. Whatever it would be that keeps us from seeing Jesus more clearly, my prayer for us as we spend a few weeks looking at the book of Matthew is simply this, that we would see Jesus a little more clearly. And here in this brief passage, we get a portrait of an ironic depiction of Jesus. This passage shows us who Jesus is in profound but ironic ways. In this this passage, we read about the royal mockery of Jesus. The royal mockery of our Lord. And in this picture of Jesus being mocked, We see several important things about him. The first thing that we notice in this passage is we notice something, or the first thing we see in this passage is that this royal mockery reveals to us the identity of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The very first sentence of the book of Matthew, in fact, the very first sentence of the book of Matthew, or the very first sentence of the New Testament, it begins to describe Jesus for us as king. The very first sentence of the New Testament reads like this. 
The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. The very first sentence of Matthew's gospel has been telling us by connecting Jesus with great King David. The very first sentence of Matthew's gospel has been telling us here is the identity of this man named Jesus whose life and whose suffering and whose death and whose resurrection we're going to follow. He is the king. That's who he is. And he's not just any old king. He is the king who was promised in the line of David, the great king who reigned in Jerusalem a thousand years before Jesus was born, the great king who received these massive promises about one of his sons reigning in God's kingdom forever. And then as the years went by, there were these Building and building prophecies about the great king who would be the son of David. And you remember those beautiful words that we read in the Christmas season about King, about King David's greater son. These words from Isaiah chapter 9 which tell us about a child who would be born on whose government would be, or on whose shoulders would be the government and of the reign of whose kingdom and through whom the reign of peace would have no end. We read these great promises about great King David's greater son who would bring an ever expanding reign, an ever expanding kingdom of peace. Of course, we don't live in a world that quite looks and feels like that, right? We live in a world that feels like the opposite of peace very often for a thousand different reasons. Some of them very personal. Some of them very public. Some of them very individual to us. Some of them felt throughout our society. In a thousand ways, we feel not like we live in a world of peace, but a world that is broken. And yet these promises ring through the Scriptures of a king who would be the prince of peace. And now we're reading in the Gospel of Matthew about the kingdom of God coming through Jesus Christ. Things are looking up. But now Jesus has been arrested. And He's been put on trial and He has been condemned to death as we saw last week. And as Jesus walks and marches and journeys closer and closer to the cross, even in the darkness, God is revealing glimpses of the bright hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Here in this passage about the royal mockery of Jesus, we learn something about the identity of Jesus. And we learn that especially in the way that this passage is structured. Now, I'm going to talk about something that might make this feel like high school English class for a minute. And my apologies to you if this bores you too much. But stick with me and I think you'll see something cool in this. There's an ancient way of telling a story. Uh, and we sometimes call that ancient way of telling a story a chiasm or a chiasmus. That's a weird ancient word. You don't need to remember that for any reason. 
But what this ancient way of telling a story works kind of like this. If I were to tell you a story that says, I left my house and I drove to Advent and I walked in through the front doors and I found my seat and I praised God through singing and God met me. And then I continued singing. And then I walked back out through those doors and I got back in my car and I drove all the way back home and I've made my way back to my kitchen table where it all began, right? If I tell this story in that way, what just happened? All the details that flowed into the beginning of the story then kind of in reverse order flowed out at the end of the story, right? Did you see that? And the point of telling a story in that way is to highlight what's at the middle of the story. What was at the middle of the story I just told? God met me. The point isn't mainly that I walked through the doors, right? The point isn't mainly that I got in my car. Those details leading up to the center of the story and those details funneling away from the middle of the story, are there to highlight what's at the epicenter of that story. That's an ancient way of telling a story in this kind of sideways V shape, if you will, if you write it on paper. And the reason I bring that up is because this passage here in Matthew chapter 27 comes to us in the form of kind of an elegant little chiasm. An elegant presentation of this story. And we have a slide actually that can kind of show you how these details work together. In just a second you'll see it. But here you can kind of see, this is just what I did on my computer screen to kind of show you how these details parallel each other. Remember how this ancient world, I should have done it this way instead of this way, but the ancient world way of telling a story kind of moves uh, moves this way and then centers on something and then all the details funnel back. Well, the way that this passage that we're reading today is structured begins and ends with the soldiers leading him. Do you see that? And then sandwiched one level in between that, we get a picture of Jesus having his own clothes taken away from him and his own clothes put back on him. And then sandwiched one level in from that, we get this story of the twisting together of the crown of thorns placed on his head, mirrored toward the end of the story by him being struck in the head. Do you see how this is like very elegant storytelling in a way? And then they put the reed in his hand, mirrored by the fact that they took that reed and they spit on him and they struck him. But remember what I told you about telling a story in this ancient world way of doing things. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is the thing that's right in the middle of the target, right? And in this very elegantly told little paragraph here in Matthew's gospel, what's at the center of it? Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You see, in this royal mockery, what we're seeing is a profound confirmation of what Matthew has been telling us from the very first sentence of his gospel. Jesus is the king of the Jews, worthy of worship. He is that king. And what Matthew is drawing our attention to is this profound detail that even in this darkest moment... Something is being revealed about the very identity of Jesus. When we look at the way that this passage is lined up, one of the things that we notice is kind of the 
careful, poetic nature with which the human author recorded this account. But I hope that we also see the profound details that the capital A author was writing in the story behind the story. In the historical events of Jesus, track with me here for a second. At this moment when things seemed absolutely darkest, at this moment when everything seemed lost, at this moment when hope was running precious thin, as the shadow of the cross looms closer and closer, our redeeming God still has His hands at work in the most intimate details of His Son's life. Here in the darkest moment, He is still orchestrating the details so that these soldiers might gather around and mock Jesus. And yet even in their mockery of Jesus, even their mockery is serving to underscore something of the truth of Jesus. Even their mockery is playing into God's greater redemptive plan of revealing the true identity of Jesus. Even their mockery is being drawn up into God's redemptive purposes. And so as they call out, Hail to the King of the Jews! They think all they're doing is mocking Jesus. But with redemptive eyes, looking back years later, with the advantage of hindsight, and the careful details recorded in Matthew's Gospel, we can see that all of their mockery was only playing into God's plan to spotlight the glorious identity of our Lord, Jesus, who is the King. But that brings us to a second point we want to notice here. Not only that the royal mockery reveals the identity of Jesus as king, but even more specifically than that, the royal mockery reveals the mission of Jesus. It reveals something about his mission and something about how he came to accomplish his kingdom agenda. Notice the details of how he is crowned king. He is crowned with a crown of thorns, according to verse 29. This imagery of the crown of thorns is familiar to us, but maybe a bit overly familiar. These mocking soldiers have taken kind of a dried out, uh, a dried out vine with thorns. Have you ever stabbed yourself with a thorn accidentally while you're pulling weeds in the garden? Ow! It's surprising how much one of those little things can dig in and hurt, right? Soldiers intentionally take whole dried vines of thorns and weave them together to compose this crown. And then they take it and they don't just kind of gently set it on his head so the needles poke in and he says, ow! They take it and they jam it into his skull so that the pain digs all the way into his head so that his blood flows down. 
like tears on his cheeks. And here in this moment, as Jesus, the king, is crowned, not with a gentle crown of thorns, not with a gentle crown of gold, but with a bloody crown of thorns. We see something about the mission of Jesus. We see something about how Jesus intended to bring his kingdom. It wasn't through painless triumph. Rather, it was through painful sacrifice. The kingdom of God was breaking into this world in the person of Jesus. But the kingdom of God would not arrive through painless triumph. It would only, it would only be possible through painful sacrifice. And here we see a glimpse into something even more glorious about Jesus. It's not just that he's a king. It's that he's a king unlike any other king we've known in our world. In fact, Jesus went to great lengths at, at, at certain moments to distinguish himself from the kinds of kings, from the kinds of lords, from the kinds of leaders whose leadership we've experienced in this world. And so, for example, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus explained his kind of leadership his kind of reign, his kind of rule like this. Here's King Jesus's mission. You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And you know how their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, he says to his disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be like a slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how Jesus has described His mission to bring the kingdom of God into this world. Not a mission of painless triumph. Not a mission of easy acceptance. Not the path of comfort and ease. Not the path of other people just lining up and saying, how can I make your life happier? But through the pathway of painful, self-giving, And sacrifice even to the point of death. This is Jesus' mission revealed in this vivid picture. This vivid picture of a crown made not of gold and gems, but a crown made of thorns being shoved onto his forehead with the result of blood like teardrops pouring down his cheeks. The royal mockery that we read about in this passage reveals something of the identity of Jesus as the king, and it reveals something of the mission of Jesus as the king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. The king who came not to be served, but to serve. 
In this royal mockery, I'll say this as a little bit of a side note, but this royal mockery also reveals for us something about the path of discipleship. It reveals for us something about the pathway of discipleship that we are called to follow Him in. See, in this, in this cultural moment that we live in, in this place where we live here in America, the expectations are pushed on us all day that the goal is to be served. The goal is to be happy. The goal is to minimize and avoid pain. The goal is that whatever your heart desires, you should find a way to fulfill those desires. According to America, the goal is to find the way to live your best life possible right now. That's how America views the good life. It's all about maximizing joy specifically by avoiding pain. And then, sometimes people begin following Jesus with some version or another of this American idea. I want the happy life. I want things to be relatively easy. I mean, most of us aren't like demanding that we be the wealthiest person in our city, but we'd rather be in the upper half. Most of us aren't demanding that we have a perfect family, but we'd rather have an easy one. Most of us are not demanding that we have everything we ask for, but we sure want most of it. Most of us don't demand that we get whatever we desire, but we do feel like it's our right to have a pathway to go and get it if we want it. If we desire it. And then we begin following Jesus with these American ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness attached to our hearts. And very quickly we run into things that don't quite fit with what feels like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At least not the way it's portrayed in movies and TV and songs. And so sometimes we feel like, Jesus let me down. Jesus promised life, didn't he? Jesus promised me life. How come my kids are so difficult? Jesus promised me life. Why are friendships sometimes exhausting? Jesus promised me life. Why on earth would he call me to give away my money instead of storing up my money? Jesus promised me life. Why on earth does it feel like I'm killing my desires instead of fulfilling my desires sometimes? And we get mad at Jesus. And we accuse Jesus of tricking us, of being mean, of being an ogre, 
of withholding true life from us. But what's really going on is that Jesus knows what true life consists of. And he knows what true joy really is. And he knows what life in the kingdom of God really is like. And he's paved a pathway for us of what it looks like to live as a part of God's kingdom in this fallen and broken world in the present evil age. And that pathway of living as a part of the kingdom in the present evil age is not a matter of getting your best life now. It's more like a crown of thorns. Which predicts something greater that is to come. But at first feels like ouch. Which signifies something that one day will be glorious. But at the moment, looks and feels a little bit more like tears on our cheeks. Something that ultimately leads to life. Which ultimately leads to becoming who God made you to be. And living in the world that God made you to live in. And doing it in the right relationship with the King we were made to know and love and worship and enjoy forever. But sometimes, discover, but for those of us who are living as part of the kingdom in this broken world, it doesn't begin like that. Very often in this broken world, as broken people with broken desires that are bent in the wrong directions, it begins by denying ourselves, not fulfilling our desires. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus has been teaching us to expect. If we've read the whole book of Matthew, before we see Jesus experiencing this royal mockery, before we see Jesus with the crown of thorns, that picture of what is to come, which now consists of pain, before we see this picture of Jesus with the crown of thorns driven into his head, Jesus explained that this is what the pathway of discipleship will consist of. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And we say, Jesus, that's cruel. And it is cruel unless Jesus knows what true life truly consists of. And how true life truly is found. And so Jesus who paved the way for us, who wore the crown of thorns, the thing that points to something glorious in the future, but at present feels like pain, the one who himself wore the crown of thorns said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his own life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake, do you see what Jesus is after? We'll find it. And there's the key. 
When Jesus calls us to follow Him in this pathway of self-denial, which right now feels like thorns in our skull, thorns digging into the flesh, when Jesus calls us to follow in the pathway of suffering now, He's calling us to that pathway with the hope of true life and true joy and true glory then. Whoever, whoever would save His life We'll lose it. You want your best life now? You're never going to find it. But whoever loses those desires that we feel like that desire feels like everything I want. But Jesus, I trust you that you know what true life consists of. And so I'll follow you instead of following my desires. Whoever loses his desires for my sake will find it. Whoever loses joy in the sense of feeling a little bit more like a crown of thorns is digging in the skull than that a crown of glory is sitting on our head. Whoever loses joy for my sake will find true joy, Jesus says. Some of you who are parents with little kids need to hear this word from Jesus. Some days the path of discipleship feels a little bit more like dying to ourselves than thriving. But when we follow Jesus in the pathway, which involves coming not to be served, but to serve, whoever loses his or her life for my sake, will find it. Some of us need to think about it this way in the workplace. Maybe we've learned from other patterns in our lives or other patterns around us in the workplace, habits which look a little bit more like the way the world does business. Lording it over other people. I'm the boss here. Or if I'm not the boss, I should be. Lording it over other people, living like it's all a competition, living like the goal is to climb on other people's backs in order to get what we want for ourselves now. And we need to learn a different way of loving people we manage and people who manage us. A different way we love people who are peers with us on the teams we work on. A different way of loving our clients or those we serve. Not just viewing them as people from whom we can get money, but entering our workplaces saying, Jesus called me not to save my own life and get my own respect and get my own ambition served and get my own stuff and get my own money. But Jesus called me. Not to be served, but to serve. Some of us in our city need to learn to follow this way of Jesus. Some of us in our neighborhood need to learn to follow this way of Jesus that He's paved for us. Let me ask you this question. In what aspect, uh, in what aspect of discipleship do you feel most like you're dying? First of all, it's helpful to assume that there will be aspects of discipleship that will feel like dying. 
dying to ourselves, dying to our desires. In what aspect of discipleship do you feel like you're dying? And how can the promise of Jesus, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, and how can this picture of Jesus, the crown of thorns digging into his flesh, yet picturing something better to come, how can that motivate you to take up your cross and follow him? Maybe some of us, this will feel most like dying because there are cultural pressures related to sexual temptations in our lives. And that pathway of dying to ourselves just looks like saying, Jesus, you're the king. I'm not. Even if it requires humbling myself and following you, I'm all in. For others of us, there can, be other, there can be other challenging topics. If we grew up in certain kinds of cultural circles, sometimes it feels like the meanest thing ever that Jesus calls us to care about the poor and the hurting. What good did that ever do? It feels like the meanest thing ever that he calls us to sell our possessions and give to the poor. And yet we need to lay down our cultural perspectives. And even if it feels a little bit like dying to the culture I grew up in, we need to take up our cross and follow him. In what aspect does discipleship feel to you most like dying? Maybe there are relational issues that sometimes feel like dying. And maybe we have kind of these cultural assumptions that say, I'm kind of a avoid conflict at all costs kind of person. And so maybe feeling like dying means going and starting a conversation with a friend that you know you need to start a conversation with. Maybe for others, we've grown up in this high conflict kind of thing where we, you know, we get into it about anything and everything. Just bring up the word masks and I'll be glad to argue with you. You know, right? Like or name one of a dozen other issues like you bring it up, I'll argue. Right. And maybe for us dying to ourselves, taking up our cross and following him involves setting those things aside and saying, Jesus, you're the king, not me. I came not to be served, but to serve. I'll lean into that discussion that feels like dying, or I'll lean into speaking with caution and care for others when that feels like dying, right? In so many ways, what aspect of discipleship feels like dying to you? And how can this promise and this picture of Jesus propel us forward? But this royal mockery reveals something even more than the path of discipleship. This royal mockery of Jesus reveals something even greater. This royal mockery of Jesus, who is the king, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came and he did this in some sense, paving a way of discipleship for us. But he came and he did this en route to demonstrating and receiving his own global glory. You see, this royal mockery reveals the global glory of Jesus to us. The global glory of Jesus. There's an interesting detail that's going on here in this passage Notice who is gathered before Jesus here. 
Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. If we take this description of a whole battalion literally, historians would tell us this is a picture of 600 Roman soldiers. Get this picture, 600 Roman soldiers coming and bowing in mockery before Jesus. Why is that significant? Because the whole book of Matthew has been telling us that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's also much more than the king of only the Jews. Back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, these wise men came from the east. These Asian sages came traveling from afar. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, they arrive in Jerusalem and they have this question that they want to ask. They say, where is he who has been born king? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. These people from the Far East, these people from Asia are coming right from the beginning of the gospel to worship Jesus. The nations are being gathered around Jesus Christ according to God's plan. In the very next passage, which we'll dig into next week in verse 32, we read about a man from Cyrene who takes up his cross and follows Jesus. It's a man from Africa taking up his cross and following Jesus. And here in our passage for today, we add to this portrait of these Asian sages from the east, this African man from the south. We add to that this picture of 600 European Roman people bowing their knees in mock worship of Jesus. What's going on here? We're getting a portrait of the global glory of Jesus. Which actually is not even something that Matthew came up with at all. This has been God's very plan all along. Going back to Genesis chapter 12. The promise of God to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From Genesis chapter 12 on, we have this picture of a global family of worshipers. A global family of people who will know and be blessed by Yahweh. And here as the cross is coming closer and closer... We get a picture not only of the suffering of Jesus, but we get a glimpse of His coming greater global glory as the nations according to God's plan are being gathered together in worship before Him. Right now in Matthew chapter 27, they're just mocking. But we know from God's Word, this glorious thing, one day... Every knee shall bow. And every tongue is going to confess. From the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. Every knee is going to bow. In fact, here's what's, here's the, the song that is being sung to celebrate the triumph 
of the Lamb who was slain. The triumph of the Lamb who also appears as a triumphant lion. The song that is sung from him goes something like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made all of them a king. And you made all of them priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is the song that is sung about the triumph that Jesus accomplished. As the crown of thorns is pressed into his flesh. As the crown of thorns is pressed into his skull and the blood begins to drip down his cheeks like tears. Jesus Christ is suffering en route to a far greater glory. He's suffering en route to the joy set before Him. When His people, His beloved people from every ethnicity on this planet will be gathered together in worship before Him. The royal mockery of Jesus reveals that he's a king. But he's not a little king like Herod. He's not a falsely arrogant king like all the leaders we've known in this world. No, he's a king who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as a result, we know that this song will be sung forevermore. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And it will be sung by people from every tribe and language and people and nation as a testimony to His global glory. And our opportunity today as we pay attention to Jesus Christ and the royal mockery that He endured. Our opportunity today is to turn our eyes afresh on Him. You know, there's this moment in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, which says, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And our opportunity today is to set the eyes of our hearts afresh on Jesus Christ. King Jesus and His global glory. And to consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. So that hearing that global glorious song of praise that's being sung to His name, we may not grow weary or faint heart. That's our opportunity today. So let's join with that crowd. Not waiting until that day when every knee will bow. But let's bow our hearts in humility before Him even today. 
so that we can join in that global song of praise. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to be serving the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.